1: It's Women's History Month, and there's no better way to celebrate than by hearing from amazing women who are making history and changing the world for the better. Learn from leaders like Tory Burch, Madeline Albright, Ariana Huffington, Katie Couric, Valerie Jarrett, and more. Listen to Seneca Women Conversations on Power and Purpose on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here. Uh, I'm in the home studio here at Pond City Market. Uh, but my interview guest, Mr. Chris Weitz, was in New York City. Don't do a lot of these remote hookups much. Uh, I've talked about it before. Uh, it's not the greatest situation in the world, but uh, Chris was a really good guy and very conversational. And uh, I think we pulled it off. Uh, you might know Chris from, geez, he's done so many things. He, he started his career and uh, got the most attention right out of the gate uh, with a movie he co-directed with his brother, uh, American Pie, and just got so much collateral on that first film being such a big hit, he was able to do a lot of interesting things uh, after that, like acting in a wonderful uh, sort of demented little indie that I love called Chuck and Buck. Uh, He also co-directed Down to Earth, uh, was nominated for an Oscar award for screenplay for About a Boy, uh, which he uh, co-wrote and co-directed as well. Just a wonderful, wonderful film. One of my favorites. Uh, he also was a writer on Rogue One, Star Wars movie. And his new film in theaters uh, August 29th is called Operation Finale. And uh, they set up a screening for me here in Atlanta. And boy, was it good. It's, uh, it's a story of the real true story of the hunt and capture and trial of Adolf Eichmann. Uh, he was one of the... Um, one of the architects of the uh, Nazi campaign in World War II, and kind of the one of the big, the only one of the big three that escaped justice uh, for a long time, uh, living in uh, South America uh, under a different name. Uh, they finally caught up to him, and this is that story, starring um, Ben Kingsley as Eichmann and Oscar Isaac uh, as uh, kind of the guy who leads the team uh, in a sort of Argo esque way. To, to grab and kidnap this man and get him out of the country somehow uh, under the radar. And uh, also co-stars uh, Nick Kroll and uh, Melanie Lauren And she's just wonderful in everything that she's in. It was just a really good movie. A very taut, suspenseful, um, sort of ticking clock political uh, thriller, period piece. It's all those things. <laughs> really good movie. Hope you guys go out and see it. You'll really enjoy it. And uh, we had a great talk today about his career and his interesting life growing up. Uh, I did not know that he had a, a long family history in in Hollywood and beyond, so that was super cool to to learn about. And his pick was just a little film, just a little nothing indie called Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, one of the, probably the epic of all epics in the, in the age of the epic Hollywood film, Lawrence of Arabia even stands alone. And I had never seen it. And this is one of those. It's long been on the list, and I got to watch it um, at my house. Uh, I'm definitely going to go check it out in the theater next time they have a uh, an anniversary screening or something because it was something else. What a great, great film. I get the hype now, everyone. Lawrence of Arabia is awesome and um, really something to to behold as a viewer. So uh, we had a great conversation, even though we were a 1,000 miles apart. Uh, here we go with Chris White's on Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I'm glad we're getting to talk because you are a, uh, you're a multi-hyphenate, as they call it, in the business.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, let me, see. so, uh, the, I mean, the actor stuff doesn't really count because I only did that twice.
2: Oh, but Chuck uh, and Buck is such a good movie. <laughs> Chuck and
1: Buck sticks in people's minds. I loved it. Yeah uh thanks man <laughs> i'm a huge mike yeah. white fan and it was uh he's yeah. brilliant yeah yeah that, brilliant. that's a great one um yeah no that that was uh, I'm, I'm so glad i did that movie before um i got to establish to worry not to worry about it um it was great <laughs> Uh, really bizarre the way that came about which is that M- Miguel Arteta who who had gone had gone to school with my brother and um sent us both the script because we looked alike basically because uh-huh. he needed two <laughs> characters that looked alike and he wanted to have non-actors in it um it, there there were no other qualifications really
2: <laughs> <laughs> I loved and, it man I thought it was great and it was no, um no, it's interesting cuz you're a guy who and this is one of my favorite qualities I think in a filmmaker is uh you've really done a lot of different things In your career, I mean, obviously you and your brother, I mean, you co-wrote the movie Ants, an Uh animated film, and then you and your brother really made your name for yourself with the American Pie movie, and then right after that, you starred in Chuck and Buck, and then did Down to Earth and About a Boy, and like you really... I never knew what yeah. to expect from you guys, and I, w- I always appreciate that about uh, we. Artists. We
1: try to we try to keep things weird uh, in general, <laughs> have the strangest filmographies possible. I mean, I think um, uh, we, we when we got the chance to direct our first movie, it happened to be American Pie, and it was it's a movie that I loved and loved making, but it wasn't like the 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 thing that my heart desired most of all. I'd never been to uh, high school in America um, didn't go to prom. So I was working in a genre that I didn't really know, uh, very well. Uh-huh. So, so definitely the, uh, intent was to do something different as, as soon as possible. And Chuck and Buck was the next thing that we did. It was a sort of strange indie possibility, yeah. uh, you know, feature shot on DV as close to a dogma film, I think, as you can get in For sure. America at the time. Um, and, uh, and also some some weird kind of sexual politics stuff mm-hmm. um, uh, LGBTQ before all of the letters had been put together in that way. Yeah, kind of um, uh, interesting intersectional stuff uh, that was great to be a part of. Um, because also I sort of felt like I felt a little guilty having made a studio film. <laughs> now I yeah. don't feel guilty anymore. Um, but it was <laughs> a way to, to sort of say, oh, you know, we we have this kind of foot in the indie world my brother still makes uh, independent films um uh which is great uh and i will probably do that next um but uh yeah i i think that the thing was not to be pigeonholed I, it, it, there, there's a threat to that too though which is that you sort of don't get a brand mm-hmm. and everybody apparently has to brand themselves um uh but um, it's because you don't necessarily have an identifiable visual um, uh, sort of uh, uh, gallery of, of things. They're they're quite different um, in a way. Uh, but but I'm happy to, to live with that. Yeah, I mean, American
2: Pie certainly got you guys a ton of collateral, like to have a smash hit mm-hmm. like that right out of the gate. Uh, and I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know how it works on the inside. You talked about having a brand, but it seems like you get a lot of interesting things thrown your way, whether it be like the Twilight franchise with New Mm -hmm. Moon, or, for God's sakes, uh, writing Rogue One. Yeah. I mean, what an opportunity, you know?
1: That was a huge opportunity. That was a dream for me. I mean, I saw Star Wars when I was seven, and uh, my favorite film would be Star Wars, except that I think it's too boring because it's everybody's favorite film. (laughs) Um, So uh, when when I got to, to write, uh rogue one it was something that i've been hoping for 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 years since i'd heard that they were going to uh make make new films uh and it it happened to be exactly what i would have wanted to do which was the opening crawl that is to say Mm. you know the i'm kind of an orthodox ultra orthodox star wars fan like all that really matters to me are episodes four five and six Uh uh and nothing outside of that is canon to me. Uh, so to be able to work in that uh, area was was just fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, I even, I rarely
2: do this, but I put out a call on our Facebook page about, you know, I'm talking to Chris White's, what do you want me to talk about? And mm. I think about 80% of the people said talked about Rogue One and uh, the fact that I think among Star Wars fans, it's, uh, I think, widely
1: considered the best of the new lot. Oh, that's super cool. Um, I- I'm glad. I think that's uh, uh, thanks to Gareth Edwards, really, um, and the w- what he wanted to do, the stamp that he put on it. I think that the things, I, I mean, there are a lot of terrific writers w- worked on that, and it's amazing that it h- sort of holds together, given how many people did. Um, but I think uh, the reason is, is his work. Um, you know, he was a fan as well. I mean, in some ways, Rogue One is kind of a fan movie. Um, It's just a fan movie if you were given all of the tools at your disposal. And I think, um, I mean, I I like the other films very much. Uh, Obviously, I can't judge uh, without bias. But, you know, Solo, when when you look at that, is a movie made by some of the original makers of these films. Mm -hmm. So, um, but but this is, Rogue One was... um, the people who grew up on it, um, and who who would desperately wanted to 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 do it and do it uh, correctly when they had the chance. So I think there's a lot of deep love of especially episode four in it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you're um,
2: like for someone who can uh, to, who writes and produces and directs, what what goes into your decision making process career wise? Like
1: when to tackle what right um well i think with directing it it comes down it has to be something that i really desperately feel i have to do or i'll regret it deeply right i'm not i'm not a gigging director i'm Mm -hmm. not thinking about what to do next and i don't make a film a year or even a film every two years um and in part that's because i I can't necessarily stand the physical and mental pressure of doing it or whatever at least what i put on myself and you know it is a, a, a lot of work um Uh, and I have a family, I have three children, uh, and sort of takes me away from them every time I do that. So I sort of have to justify being a bad parent for a while. Um, (laughs) so, uh, so that's the highest bar to reach. Um, in terms of writing, I mean, I get kind of excited about when I feel like I know how to fix something occasionally, Mm -hmm. which is sort of rewriting work. Uh, and also I love, um adapting the work of of novelists yeah. um and and sort of trying to uh to convey what's great about th- those books in another medium uh in a way that I I would hope that the novelists themselves can approve of um there there's that so that's kind of my connection to what I studied in college which was english um what else uh acting i will pretty much do anything anyone asks me but nobody <laughs> does <laughs> <What else>? nice <laughs> Uh, and, and producing is kind of, if I can help, uh, somebody do one of those things, which is to say, like, work on something they really, really care about, um, then, then that's great. Um, you know, I've had, been really, uh, uh, fortunate in getting, uh, Kogunada's first movie made, Columbus, which, um, was a beautiful film starring John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. Uh, we're, uh, we are producing, uh, Lulu Wang, uh, her second movie. Mm-hmm. Um, which is based on a This American Life episode about her family, which she did. And, oh, and so yeah. it's really cool to be able to intervene uh, beneficially in, early in someone's career. Um, and also that's, that's true of this uh, science fiction film, Prospect, um, starring uh, Pedro Pascal that, uh, that went to uh, South by Southwest this year. Um, uh, that, that's sort of the best part of producing, I think. Um, yes. That is the long answer to your
2: short (laughs) question. Well, I mean, speaking of working uh, on books, you know, About a Boy was such a great book. And you guys, uh, you and your brother did such a wonderful job. It's a beloved movie. Um, Hmm. And you got an Oscar nomination for screenplay for that. Yeah, that was crazy.
1: I know. That's great. Uh, What was it like working with Nick? How involved was he? Uh, well, Nick, uh, I think at the time, you know, now he can adapt his own stuff. He can adapt other people's stuff. He can write yeah. stuff from scratch and he's doing just fine on his own, um, which he probably intended to do all along. So I think he found it probably a bit of a too painful a prospect to stay too close to events when we were shooting it. So yeah. we had some some really good meetings with Nick early and, and liked each other a lot. But I think he decided to step away uh, so as not to see how we were going to mangle what what he had done Oh no. um you know fortunately he approved uh, of it after the fact i think uh, he's been you know really kind about the movie um uh i think he was sort of surprised at at um people not noticing how much we changed the final uh kind of act of the uh of the novel let alone yeah. um you know changing the time period um but um it's really gratifying that he likes what we made of it um that said i suspect that um uh that if he had done this later in his career he would have adapted his own work and done it really beautifully right uh, um but uh so the uh the the chance to adapt that um and thus to get um, the only shred of uh, uh, prestige <laughs> oh, <that's not laughs> that 's not true ever seen. <laughs> um, uh, uh, w- was was fantastic it just felt i, I felt uh, very much um, like I was born to write that script or rather sort of educated to write that script because I kind of like lived amongst the english for for long enough, having gone to high school and college there that I understood what was going on um, and felt like capable of translating that into an American mode in some ways, but in some ways it was an English picture. Yeah, And it, it was like this fantastic moment in a test screening in London, when someone said, oh, it's a good English film. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, uh, uh, that was a really charmed production, the whole thing. I, I remember just everything that we decided to do kind of working out the way that we had wanted it to, which, mm-hmm. is, which is fantastic and it doesn't, doesn't really happen. Like I remember at one point thinking, oh, it'd be great if, you know, badly drawn boy could write an original album for this movie yeah that'd be cool and we called him up and he's like yeah okay <laughs> that's awesome uh and uh, everything in that sense kind of worked out uh, from Hugh Grant uh doing it to sort of taking a flyer on Nick Holt um e- even down to um to Tony Collette uh doing it uh uh was was an extraordinary uh, experience yeah wow. she's so great is it is it mm-hmm. weird
2: to uh do you see nick holt today and like marvel at what a big grown yeah. handsome grown man he's become he <laughs>
1: is a complete hunk yeah um <laughs> and he's he's a really good actor too uh and you, you don't necessarily know if somebody who can play a 12 year old really well at 12 is going to be able to play uh grown-ups um yeah, I mean we stay in touch and it's I uh, you know, I just love uh sort of watching him uh grow. Um <laughs> it's uh it's really funny. Yeah, that's awesome. Um where are
2: you from? You said you went to high school in England?
1: Yeah. Well I'm from New York originally, but my dad had gone to school in England. He went to to uh grade school the equivalent of grade school and high school in England. Mm-hmm. And so I was supposed to just go for a year to check out my dad's old school in London uh, when I was 14, and I ended up staying and uh, doing my exams there, A levels, they're called at mm-hmm. kind of the end yeah. of end of high school exams, and then got into Cambridge, and I stayed, and I stayed for a few years, uh, and um, that, and I've ended up working on a few movies there, which is which is great. So I'm New Yorker but sort of uh, mid-Atlantic in, uh, uh, like, education. Right. Is your uh, mother from England as well, or? No, my mom is from, she was born in L.A., Mm. but her mother was Mexican. Her her mom was actually a Mexican silent film actress, and her dad, my grandfather, was from uh, the Czech Republic, which at that time uh, was Austria, and then became... Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. and then became the Czech Republic <laughs> right. through various world wars uh, uh, hot and cold um, and uh, yeah so I'm from I'm kind of from all over I mean like a lot of Americans are
2: now with, with you and your brother was that was filmmaking something you always wanted to get into or I mean is it in your family lineage at all
1: it was um so my my mom um was an actor. Um, She's actually in a film, which is in my film. So she was in a film called Imitation of Life in 1959. um, That um, She played an African-American woman passing as white um, in this uh, uh, great Douglas Sirk film in 1959. Uh, Her father was uh, uh, a producer and agent, and he was an agent for a lot of uh, European uh, filmmakers. He was Ingmar Bergman's agent um, he was, uh, Billy Wilder's agent. Um, Holy cow. And, uh, yeah. So there's, there's that sort of that part of the family goes, goes back in, in terms of filmmaking. And my, my grandma was, um, uh, known as La Novia de Mexico, which means the sweetheart of Mexico. She was kind of the, um, the first, uh, talking picture star in Mexico. And before that she'd been a silent film actress in, in Hollywood. So wow. that's kind of a cool story too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, we, this is like the family, uh, uh, business. Oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. Mm.
2: So, uh, were you and your, I mean, so obviously you guys, I mean, I usually ask people about their influences growing up and certainly when you have an older sibling, um, I have an older brother and an older yep. sister, you get a lot of culture fed through them. Absolutely. Was that sort of your jam as, as kids growing up?
1: That was definitely, um, you know, all the good music, uh, and and stuff came through my brother and eventually he started uh writing plays um which he still does uh and uh when i graduated from college we thought it would be kind of a wheeze to uh to to write screenplays together we didn't really have a clear idea of what was going to come of it it just mm-hmm. seemed like it might be a cool thing and maybe it would work out and uh and it, it did we, we we worked hard but we were also very lucky i remember on my 21st birthday we had pitched a story to mgm and they, uh, they said, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll pay to write a screenplay. It was a long time between that and getting screen credit, which was on ants, mm-hmm. um, which I think came out in 1998, 97. Yeah, it sounds but, about right. Um, uh, uh, so that was like seven years to, to that point of just, um, working on our own stuff and rewriting other people's stuff, but never really getting anything made. Um, and then it, it sort of all started with, with that for us. Did you ever have to yell, my grandfather was Billy Wilder's agent, for God's sake? <laughs> <laughs> I feel, the funny thing is, although we did have this sort of background in film, it was like an old film, and European right. film, like from a totally different era, so like, uh, by the time uh, the 90s rolled around, nobody nobody really cared. Um, but now, it's it's nice to to look back on. Yeah, that's awesome.
2: Um, I got to see Operation Finale mm. uh, two days ago. Cool, and thank was, you for watching it. Great, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> it was really good, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, again, with kind of uh, not having like a direct through line through your career, you've you've done all these interesting films, things like *Ants* in *American Pie* about a boy, mm-hmm. and then you do uh, what it what feels like a heist movie, even though it's not exactly, right. mm-hmm. but it sort of has the DNA of a heist movie, as a as a, a sort of a ticking clock thriller, which is. You know, it's one of my yeah. favorite genres, and I know that's something in in screenwriting where they say, "Hey, if you can get a ticking clock going, you had the luxury of having a, a real ticking clock built into the real life story." Yep, which was uh, it really gave it a lot of
1: intensity. Um, uh, thank you. I'm glad it did. Um, yeah, in some ways, it's got sort of all these genre uh, bells and whistles. It's a it's a kidnapping plot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the true story: Mossad uh, uh, kidnapped. Uh Adolf Eichmann, who was uh the kind of logistics coordinator uh of the the holocaust um they found out he was in Buenos Aires and put together a team to extract him and take him to israel for trial a pretty extraordinary cinematic story from the get go oh yeah um and uh yeah i i I wanted it to be a kind of a hybrid of um of a genre suspense thriller and also um at the same time, kind of reckoning with uh, who this person Adolf Eichmann was, and, yeah. and what it was like for the uh, for a team of uh, people whose families had been um, destroyed in the Holocaust to have to live with him for the ten days in which they wait in a safe house to be taken out by LL. Yeah, man. It was. I mean, it was just so
2: intense because, uh, you know, I felt like about half the people just wanted to. Torture and kill him, yeah. Uh, but you, you also as a filmmaker, and I think to your credit, you know, you needed to tell the story also of this old man whose response is, "Am I to blame for all of World War II?" Right. You know. So it was really interesting to kind of, and of course, he is a bad guy, and there are some he really is a very bad guy, tough, yeah. affecting scenes in the film. But um, I think to your credit, to even indulge that line of thought from
1: him uh was pretty necessary i think so i mean i i think it's important uh to um to see the people who perpetrate these um crimes as human beings not because we should feel sympathy for them mm-hmm. but because we should be alive to the possibility of it happening in our time yep. in our country in our culture uh in ourselves uh, as well um so uh, I think the temptation is always there be, to to make them as evil uh, as possible um, on the surface, uh, but I but um, we aimed to sort of try to seduce the the characters and in a way the audience into mm-hmm. viewing them as as people as well. Yeah, and uh, it's,
2: it's interesting. Like you've had this long successful career, worked with all kinds of people, but I imagine even at this stage uh, to be directing those scenes with ben kingsley and oscar isaac just the two of them like that had to be pretty cool
1: it is uh extremely cool i mean on, on the one level you, you can just sort of let them let them fly um and know that you're going to get great stuff uh uh on on uh, another level um sort of to try to uh, keep up with them and what they're doing uh, is is a huge uh challenge and you know even with a studio film time is always running out in terms of the number of takes you're going to get to uh to sort of solidify what the what the character is going to be Mm -hmm. um so it is uh it's exciting it's it's really daunting um you know any any actor who's been working as long as i've been working as a director has actually been in three or four times as many movies as i have directed so that uh is interesting as well um they bring a tremendous amount of experience of different uh, performances uh, to the table, uh, but um, it was actually, when all was said and done, surprisingly smooth. The whole the whole process. Um, yeah. There wasn't a lot of hammering hammering things out.
2: Yeah. Well, when, um, there there were some scenes with Ben Kingsley as uh, the young Eichmann. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Was that all makeup or was there some uh,
1: CG involved? There was some CG. Uh, there was some CG involved. We're getting pretty good at doing that. Yeah, um, it really looked believable, I thought. And you didn't, I think the key to that stuff is
2: not overdoing it and hanging yep. too long. Um, Not to mention another Star Wars movie. <laughs> I won't go there. Right. But uh, you, you sort of played it just right, I think, and it came off as super believable.
1: Oh, thanks. I'm glad. Um, You know, it's, it's really tr- sort of tricky to try to get that stuff right um to uh sort of de-age a person to mm-hmm. the appropriate level uh that um that is right for the scenario not to have it go into uncanny valley yeah um uh to maintain the the uh sort of performance qualities it was, it was a company called shade vfx in los angeles and i worked very hard los angeles and new york and we we all worked very hard together to try to get that right how did the story come to you uh, I was sent the uh, script by MGM uh, two years ago. Um, uh, John Glickman, who's the head of things over there, uh, knew that I had had some experience with the period because of my my dad. My dad wrote uh, biographies of uh, prominent Nazi Party members. Oh wow! Um, and uh, and I sort of helped him put together his library and did some uh, helped him with his research and uh, copy copyright his manuscripts so i was kind of immersed in this stuff mm-hmm. uh, as a child um and so in spite of the fact that my first movie was a teen sex comedy right. this was like not totally alien to me yeah um so i uh, and i hadn't had a chance to 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 do something in this period um that was it was very exciting yeah i mean it was just beautifully shot it was very very good looking movie thank you that's um havier um a uh, um a wonderful spanish uh, dp who also shot the others and the road which is a very beautiful movie blue oh, yeah. jasmine uh he has a uh, beautiful sort of burnished um uh, yet still realistic uh style and he and i have now worked together on three movies kind mm-hmm. of know each other's ways and um uh, 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 I think that a great thing about Javier's work is that he doesn't have anything to prove. We're not kind of pushing camera moves and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, gyrating around uh, uh, or or taking on um, uh, sort of artistic angles just for the sake of it.
2: Yeah, it was not flashy. It, it, It just came across as a very just a good looking movie. Oh thanks that's the best way to say it i think uh and then Nick Kroll is in it, which uh yeah, big fan of his comedy, and it's uh i mean there are a couple of lighter moments with him, but mm-hmm. he he definitely played against type here, and it was good to see
1: that's a serious role, and he I mean he's actually a very serious thoughtful guy, as I think a lot of uh uh, uh good comedians are um there's always a sort of a darkness to uh to comedy um and um I think uh Nick brought a real thoughtfulness to the to the part um he had actually when he was a kid known uh one of the uh, members of the expedition um who who was uh an associate of his his father's uh, mm-hmm. Nick's father worked in corporate security um so he he also sort of felt connected to the to the part yeah was it important for you to try and cast uh Jewish actors as much as you could for those roles? Um, I felt like that wasn't a requirement. There are some non-Jewish actors playing Israelis. I felt like there's, there's, I mean, there's probably an elusive, uh, balancing point at which you are, um, you know, goy washing things as it were. Right. Uh, and there's also a point at which you're, you're being a little too restrictive by saying that only, uh, Jewish actors can play Jewish parts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, it, we, we there are a couple of wonderful uh israeli actors in the film uh leo raz and ohad noler uh i mean it, it, the actual the mission itself uh on the mission itself some of the uh agents were born in israel uh but the rest of them were born in germany and poland and romania um and hungary uh and so it was kind of an international uh, uh group anyway yeah that's awesome uh well, I can't wait for, you know, I'll, I'll give it a good plug with
2: the listeners before and after in the intro piece. But uh, I really you. can't wait to see this thing in the theater. Uh, awesome. I, I, think, I think you're going to do quite well, sir, with it. I hope so.
1: Yeah,
0: we worked hard. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock.
2: So we can move into Lawrence of Arabia now. And uh, let's move. <laughs> which is, um, I have to admit, I had never seen this movie.
1: Oh man! And like, if you had to see it because I said so, did you know you were in for an over three-hour-long movie? I did. I mean, this is one
2: of those that I've always <laughs> wanted to see. I knew uh, it wasn't like, well, what is this? I've never heard of this. Um, right. It's been on the long list, and I've I've admitted there are so many classics like this I need to get around to. So I owe you uh, some gratitude. For uh for quote unquote forcing me to watch this. It's but, a great film. Oh man, just unbelievable. Um nineteen sixty two, David Lean uh directed and then uh d- you know, of course Peter O'Toole. I don't was that his very first movie?
1: I believe it was his very first movie. That's um, crazy. I think it was introducing Peter O'Toole. He may have been in a bit part in something or other, but it's the one that really broke him. Yeah. Um you didn't I don't suppose you were able to see it on a big screen that was it, it every once in a while I knew you because no, not not because not to sort of say like yeah you, 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 you can't speak properly to it, but it's an amazing experience to to see it on the big screen.
2: yeah, it played here. um I believe the seventy millimeter print played in Atlanta mm-hmm. a few years ago didn't get to see it, but now that is like on my list too because I know they still um show the restored version. Yep. Uh, from time to time and I have a great big TV and but I definitely want to see this on the big big screen That's, I mean it's fantastic. all about the big big screen
1: um it was definitely shot um very wide very big um I think it was Jack Cardiff wasn't it was it the the uh or was it Freddie young it's Freddie young Freddie young yeah okay um uh Nicholas rogue shot a uh, second unit interesting thing about I saw about, that about that. Um, that's pretty wild. Um, yes. Okay. So here is, uh, I suppose the, what's problematic about my saying, this is my favorite movie. There are no women <laughs> in this movie. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's like, it's hard to, uh, to hang on to it, uh, uh, as a favorite movie uh, in these times. Um, but I'm going to make an argument that in some ways there, there is a, uh, uh, A kind of well as as Noel coward said about peter o'toole if he were any prettier they'd call it florence of arabia that um (laughs) there there are some sort of uh gender fluid dynamics in the movie um but i i fully cop to the fact that it's kind of lame to like a movie that has uh, zero women in it however i do think that the screenplay and cinematography and performances are absolutely extraordinary.
2: Yeah. But to be fair, like, would this movie have been any better if they forced in some kind of lame love relationship?
1: Yeah. Uh, probably not. And probably the fact of the matter, it, 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 in a way, it is about horrible things that men do. Um, and so I don't by any means think that uh, this is entirely a heroic story. As a matter of fact, I think it's got a running critique of um of of the heroic male ideal mm-hmm. um and so yeah i i'm not sure that that would make it a better film as as the film that it is yeah and for the
2: time i mean i had i went and did some research afterward cuz i didn't know much about te lawrence or his story mm-hmm. um widely speculated and generally agreed upon that he was uh, probably gay yes and the way they treated it in the movie for 1962, I thought was pretty brave, and that they didn't—they just kind of let the movie be. Didn't make anything over the top, but didn't cast any judgments or make any big statements about it either.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, uh, I think uh, I think that the his character, Omar Sharif's character, Anthony Quinn's character—it's uh, it, a—it's a bit of a love triangle, uh, yeah. uh, as well as the um, the young uh kind of arab uh, young men Mm -hmm. who are serving lawrence there's there's clearly something there uh in as much as the film was able to address those things i i think uh it did sort of entertain the fact that these were men who were in love with one another Mm -hmm. uh, while they were doing what they were doing Um, and i don't i don't think it shames them for it either i think it's very clear that there are these kind of very intimate um bonds between between these guys um that weren't seen as uh beyond the pale or or something shameful either um you know there's this really funny turn in in the dialogue when um uh anthony quinn uh says to omar sharif that you know lawrence has lied about something Mm -hmm. and he says he is not perfect um, and it's clear that for that entire time, they've both been kind of maintaining this notion that that uh, that Peter O'Toole, who is perfect enough looking and seeming, uh, is is some kind of uh, uh, ideal. Um, and and that ideal is kind of broken down over the course of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it was a
2: really interesting character piece with uh, especially having never seen it and heard so much about it. I knew it was this epic of epics and that the photography was amazing Uh, in 70 millimeter, these super beautiful wide shots. But I had never heard much about the story. And uh, like I said, didn't know about T.E. Lawrence. And it's just such an interesting character piece that this guy, this, you know, blonde, blue eyed, uh, gorgeous Englishman Mm -hmm. goes by himself to the middle of nowhere because he has an affinity for the Arab people and kind of becomes almost
1: godlike to them. Yeah. Um. And, and falls from grace and, and is eventually kind of discarded at the end of it, too. I mean, there are all yeah. kinds of interesting, to me, interesting critiques of colonialism, of, uh, of heroism, of, uh, of the West um, going on in this movie that uh, if you just sort of went on what people say about it, really seems like kind of a gung-ho uh, war story, a heroic mm. great man war story. Um, and, and it, you know, there are these extraordinary, uh, scenes like the, the, attack on the Turkish, uh, mil, uh, uh, armored train, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, attack on Aqaba, all, mm-hmm. all of these amazing war scenes, which are genuinely rousing. And there's, a, there's kind of survival adventure, uh, going on, but at the same time, uh, uh, uh underneath the surface. There's this real sense that T. E. Lawrence was a deeply troubled, tortured figure mm-hmm. who uh who could not um live with his uh Englishness, could not become an Arab, which is perhaps what he most wanted to become, um, was was lost uh in the world, um, was deeply vain, uh uh kind of strangely masochistic. Um and uh, and ends up both becoming a hero and being totally uh, undone by his experiences. Uh, yeah, I mean, I,
2: it, it's a long movie, but it never feels long. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like, I mean, he hangs on certain scenes, but it always seems, David Lean does, but it always seems like for the right amount of time. And it should be a close to four hour movie.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh I know maybe these days it would be a mini series or something, but um to me like if you if you know what you're getting in for, it's a pretty amazing ride. Um and um so I I had the chance to to work with Ann Coates, the editor of Lawrence of Arabia. She edited uh The Golden Compass. Uh oh, wow. for me. Um she recently uh passed away. Uh, rest in peace. Um a very very dear incredibly talented uh woman uh who you know maybe made the greatest cut in all of cinema history um uh if you uh, with the match you, the match yes the match cutting to the to the rising sun mm-hmm. um and uh who had an incredible sense of of pacing and not pacing in terms of speeding things up but in terms of the right uh, way into and out of uh, scenes um you know who who sort of popularized uh, flat cuts as opposed to transitions mm-hmm. um, uh th- that this movie like amongst the many things that are working at absolute uh highest gear uh is the editing of the film uh, I think there's just so many uh uh aspects in which this film absolutely shines that that this was like kind of the obvious choice for me yeah, I mean the cinematography gets so much attention
2: here. I'm glad that you shouted out the editing and uh, and the writing, just the, I mean, you talk about character complexity. You, you have a, a character in Lawrence that uh, w- wants almost to be worshipped by the Arab world, mm. is almost like a traitor to England in certain ways, mm-hmm. as far as where his heart is, and willing to execute a guy, but also having a weird aversion to guns and violence in some ways. Right
1: yeah it, it has a very strange it has a very interesting take on violence and the appeal of violence and brutality um uh the the impulse towards it there's a very strange moment in the film in which um uh lawrence he and his uh kind of band of marauders have uh derailed a train and the they are killing the uh turkish not just Turkish soldiers, but Turkish citizens on board this train, mm-hmm. crossing the desert. And uh, Lawrence uh, looks down and sees a, a wounded uh, uh, Turkish officer, and the Turkish officer fires at him, and kind of wings Lawrence, and mm-hmm. and and Lawrence is. He says, "Good, good, good." <laughs> it's a very strange line reading, too. He's happy to have been shot, mm-hmm. but not killed, because and and the movie doesn't set this up terribly carefully but it's that is to say it doesn't set up in an obvious way um but uh he is pleased to have been injured um i think in part because he now feels like a fully uh fledged male which of course is is sick um and i think also very carefully the the I think David Lean cast the Turkish officer very carefully as well because he's a very beautiful man. Mm-hmm. There's something very strange uh, uh uh and and homoerotic going on in that um in that wounding there. Um there's a kind of a uh you know it's like a, r- a rite of passage or a loss of uh loss of virginity in a way. Um which also f- frankly happens it, Lawrence is, is raped later. You don't really uh it, it's not really um uh, incredibly obvious, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, that's cl- that to me, it's, that's clearly what, what happens when he is later, uh, captured, uh, by the Turks. Um, right. So there are all kinds of really extraordinary, uh, intense and deep things going on in this movie, um, that, uh, really set it apart from say uh, bridge on the river Kwai, uh, which is, you know, David Lean's, I think that was his later. I think that came later. That was actually
2: anyway, right before he
1: I'm right before. Okay.
2: He did Bridge on the River Kwai, this and Doctor Shivago
1: all 3 in a row, which is pretty Man, stunning. What a run. Um, but Bridge on the River Kwai I think is a lot more straightforward uh, uh in terms of how it deals with kind of men and and heroism. Yeah, I mean, during the scene you were talking about where he's uh,
2: uh has the little flesh wound on his arm, he 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 almost wants to be shot again, I feel like, cuz he doesn't mm-hmm. hide. He kind of stands there. Right. While this guy keeps pointing and shooting at him and missing, and yeah. I was I was just like, "What are you doing, man? Get out of there!" But there was this weird. Uh, that was definitely a strange scene to to kind of unpack.
1: It is a strange scene. I think he is daring death uh, at that point. He mm-hmm. maybe wants to die. He certainly appreciates getting injured, which is deeply strange. Um, and um, uh. And there, there's a, that, that dynamic uh, uh, works throughout the film. Later, the reason that he's captured by the Turks is that he decides to just w- kind of uh, uh, waltz into a Turkish-occupied uh, Arab village mm-hmm. um, and thinks, you know, he he's says to his uh, comrades that he's invisible and he can never be caught. Um, and then there's this extraordinary scene with, um Jose Ferrer yeah uh in which um you know Lawrence who thinks he has sort of trained himself to uh withstand uh physical pain and punishment um is uh is broken um and and you you can see his sort of dawning on him that he's not uh, what he thought he he was um yeah um so and 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 of course eventually by the end of the film he has done all these heroic uh, uh, things and he has won these great victories against the turks at the sacrifice uh, in a way of his um his decency um and um he all with the aim of of giving the arabs as it were uh their uh their own country um and um and he's screwed over by the British diplomat, mm-hmm. British and French diplomats who negotiate the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which kind of divvies up uh, divvies up that part of the world into uh, Iraq and Syria and and Jordan. Um, which and that, that's another thing that I think is really cool about the movie, which is that it's about Iraq. Yeah, uh, you know, it's not about uh, Baghdad, but it's about, but it's about Iraq and Syria and how uh the western powers completely fucked up uh this part of the world by um double dealing uh and um uh, exerting their power uh geographically. Yeah, I did a big history deep dive after mm. after watching that that
2: cleared up a lot of things. Um and it was interesting with the complexity of character like you he almost never gets what he wants because on one hand, you get the feeling that what he wants most would be to be like king of a Middle Eastern country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also kind of wanted to be regarded as an English war hero. And to the point right. where he has this um, uh, journalist following him around, photographer based on a real guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you can tell he's eating it up and he wants the press. But there were there was speculation, I think still today, that he was not as important as he made himself out to be.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think um uh the somebody in the movie says it's a sideshow of a sideshow uh um that uh the war in in the desert wasn't as crucial to kind of winning winning the war uh as the outsized uh, heroics uh, and sort of dash of the um of the campaign uh seemed to to let on. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a sort of a, in some ways, a a deeply cynical, uh, telling of, of this story. Yeah. Um, You you can see at the end too, when
2: he's, uh, that last scene where he's being driven away in the car and he passes the guys on the camels and you can see mm -hmm. in his face, he, he wants nothing more than to be on a camel
1: again. Right. Yeah. He's completely lost. Um, uh and i, I mean it, Lawrence's later in Lawrence's later life he actually tried to sign to to sign up to serve uh as um as a, an enlisted man i think it was in the raf actually i'm not 100% sure of that but he wanted to have another run at it but not as the um celebrated war hero um so there there's something i mean i guess admirable but also deeply sad uh, uh, about that and of course the movie opens with um his death which of course has now become an old chestnut mm-hmm. um in terms of of biopics but is p- pretty uh interesting in terms of how you know we we see this character riding on a motorcycle and having a somewhat ridiculous accident due to his own um um foolhardiness mm. um uh and um, we never see him on a motorcycle again, or see him in England again. Um, so the, the sort of been told in this, this interesting r- reverse order, um, um, which is to say, no matter what he's going to achieve in the rest of the film, this is what he's going to that's, this is what is going to become of him.
0: Tumunbei. Tumunbei. Tumunbei is weak. We need to rebuild. You have no choice. It has to be done. The epic fiction podcast Tumen Bay returns. Have we met before? Oh yes, General. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. I need soldiers and I need them now. Maya is defeated. Don't you see? It's not a gift, it's a curse. We are the fist of God. That fist is now raised in its club of iron to punish the city of unbelievers.
2: Listen on the iHeartRadio
0: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, in the name of God, what have you done?
2: just some of the shots i mean now as a as a as a film viewer today to see you know so many big battle scenes that mm-hmm. the more large in cg they, they they get the less impressive they become i feel like that's absolutely true and so uh, the more you this, can do it's amazing to see like the scene where they were unloading the horses on, off the train mm-hmm. or just the scenes those big wide shots of the camps or the or the the guys going to battle on the camels and horses. I mean, to look at that and know those are all
1: real things is just yep. astounding. Yeah, it is amazing. And I think that you can feel it as well. I think that that uh, the human mind is able to process the fact that these big CG battles are actually not taking place in physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it probably reached its high watermark in terms of uh, uh, CG battle stuff in, in Lord of the Rings. Um, and... Everything else is kind of aping that um uh massive technology. Um but uh but to see it in camera uh it is pretty extraordinary. The the scale of the operation, the fact that I think it was the, the, the Jordanian army was uh, was kind of enlisted in in uh mm-hmm. performing a lot of these battle uh sequences, uh, that they were filming on location uh in the desert uh stuff that you wouldn't do nowadays but that is incredibly uh effective because uh, yeah. this is in the, in the days though when you would shoot for months and months and months on end um and you know wait for the weather to be right and all kinds of stuff that we do, we can't do nowadays or we won't or don't
2: yeah I, th- I think one of my big takeaways besides just the the scope was camels are amazing <laughs>
1: Camels are pretty wild.
2: <laughs> they were a, yeah. a, a character there's, in this movie.
1: There's a lot of camel stuff in this movie. <laughs> it's really good stuff. Camels are amazing. Water is amazing. Um, <laughs>
2: yeah. Now, what was your what was your introduction to Lawrence of Arabia? What was the when was the first time you saw it? Do you remember?
1: Oh man, I feel like uh, the, my, the first time I saw it was probably part of it as a kid, um, uh, when it got mixed up in my mind with this much more schlocky movie called The Wind and the Lion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know that And uh, I think for, and, and also actually my, my uncle uh, produced a movie called March or Die. There was a sort of brief flourishing around the 1970s of Arabian uh, or Foreign Legion war movies. And I must have at, this, at that time seen on TV some really crappy cut down version of Lawrence of Arabia, which still went on longer than I was allowed to stay up um and i didn't uh see it again until i was probably at, like film forum or something and then i remember very vividly seeing it at lacma on the mm-hmm. big screen uh with uh with overture and intermission and everything um with my brother and my friend uh matthew Huffman and just being kind of bowled over and then reading about uh uh the making of the film uh robert bolt's screenplay um and, um, and just finding it not only kind of really beautiful, but incredibly intelligent. Yeah. And then that score is just so iconic now. Um, yeah.
2: Just amazing score that, uh, I believe the, the composer, yeah, he wasn't even the first choice. I think he was sort of third or fourth on the list, <laughs> That's interesting. but, yeah. uh, yeah, to, and he didn't have a whole lot of time either, apparently. So he, um, and of course you don't know if it's a chicken or the egg thing, but, Maybe it's because the movie was so iconic, but it really, man, when you hear that music at the beginning and uh, you see that wide frame, it's just like chill inducing. Absolutely. Yep. So it won Best Picture Director Score, Cinematography, Art Direction, Editing, and Sound. Mm-hmm. And Sounds lost. About right. Yeah. Peter O'Toole lost to Gregory Peck uh, for To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, no shame there. No, no. Can't, can't feel
1: bad about that. And uh, Omar Sharif. Although I think, I mean, honestly, I, th- uh, I think um, uh, Peter O'Toole's portrayal of Lawrence is more uh, nuanced than Gregory Peck uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird. And I think that you're, you're winning not just for the performance, but for the character. Yeah. And To Kill a Mockingbird a sort of approving nod to the character.
2: Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Little one note. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Omar Sharif lost. Uh, and then the screenplay did not win as well. But um, right, yeah. I mean, it, I I can't wait screenplay.
1: to see it. Wait, 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 what one screenplay? God, screenplay should have won. That's one I think to the kill a mockingbird
2: ever. did. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. Wait,
1: uh, okay. Okay. So is, it must have been. Did they have adapted screenplay and screenplay at that time, or was it only one category? I, I, I think it was adapted,
2: and and this was considered adapted from
1: uh, T. E. Lawrence's from right Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Or, yeah. Or, um. Yeah. Okay. All right. all right um i think i think lots of rave is a better screenplay. i I think i'm with you uh and
2: here's a couple of bits of trivia i'm sure you know this stuff but for the benefits of the listeners Mm -hmm. fairly interesting um most of the movement in the film goes left to right uh, Right. very purposefully because david lean uh, wanted to emphasize the journey aspect of it
1: i yep i agree Entirely, I think that we that in the West we see things as going left to right, probably because of writing. I, I wonder if it'd been made by an an Arabic uh, filmmaker, it would have gone right to left. Oh, yeah! I noticed
2: that O'Toole wrote right to left in one of those scenes, which I thought right. was a yeah, pretty I subtle he's thing. he's writing Arabic. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. that's cool. uh And then for some of those great shots, uh, David Lean's uh, cinematographer Freddie Young apparently got a hold of a 482 millimeter lens. Holy crap! Uh, in order to shoot uh, successfully, shoot a mirage, and uh, yes,
1: okay, well that that would be when uh, when Omar uh, when when you first uh, see Omar Sharif mm-hmm. arrive at the at the um, the uh, well, that amazing shot of of him and his horse kind of appearing out of um, out of this mirage. Yeah. For the yeah. benefits of non filmmaking listeners, what does a four hundred and eighty two millimeter lens mean? A 482 millimeter lens is radically outside of the bounds of what you normally use uh, in making a feature film. You might go as, you know, you're usually working somewhere between 24 millimeters and 100, 100 being very tight, uh, narrow uh, frame uh, for, for close-ups, 24 being something very wide, and 400 and whatever millimeter lens that is, is something like a specialty lens for maybe for industrial purposes or something um who knows uh <laughs> and it means that the degree of compression between foreground and background is is enormous um so you can shoot something very far away and it will appear to move forward very very uh slowly um it it it'll kind of be flattened um and and that's uh, that's what you would use to i guess catch a mirage but also something kind of um hovering into view in a mirage like all of these lenses especially when you get to the length this is going to be boring now but of a 450 something millimeter lens there are many many elements to the lens there are many many lenses uh uh through that sort of tube of the lens so that the, the light is doing all kinds of gnarly things and they have to be very carefully um very carefully calibrated in order to work properly
2: i appreciate that insight It was not boring yeah. at all <laughs> I think people will appreciate that. Uh, all right. Well, we finish up with a couple of quick segments, uh, one called What Ebert Said.
0: This movie is a complete disappointment.
2: I like to nah. go back and see what Mr. Ebert thought of these films. Uh, he gave Lawrence of Arabia four stars out of four. Fair enough. Uh, and he had this to say, uh, what a bold, mad act of genius it was to make Lawrence of Arabia or even think that it could be made. The impulse to make this movie was based, above all, on imagination. The story of Lawrence is not founded on violent battle scenes or cheap melodrama, but on David Lean's ability to imagine what it would look like, to see a speck appear on the horizon of the desert, and slowly grow into a human being. It is a spare movie in clean, uncluttered lines, and there is never a moment when you're in doubt about the logistical details of the various campaigns. Lawrence of Arabia is not a simple biography or an adventure movie, although it contains both elements— but a movie that uses the desert as a stage for the flamboyance of a driven, quirky man. That's about right. I mean, for quirky, I might <laughs> i might say sort of unhinged, but yes. Yeah, quirky was a weird word choice there. Uh, and then <laughs> we finished with five. Maybe? <laughs> he was wacky. Uh, man, his eyes were just so blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't even mention that Alec Guinness uh, portrayed oh, a Middle Easterner man. in...
1: Well, you know, of course, now now it would be beyond the pale to do that. But sure. if you're gonna if you're gonna whitewash, may as well get Alec Guinness to do it.
2: Yeah, he did a um, great job. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, and then we finish with five questions um, with Chris White's. What's the <clears> first <throat> movie you remember seeing in a theater?
1: Uh, it was Midway, starring Charlton Heston, mm. uh, about the Battle of Midway. Super schlocky movie, uh, total gung ho war film. Which actually had a, a, a little spot of, of compassion for uh, uh, Nisei Americans, uh, Japanese Americans. Um, and I saw it in the Sag Harbor uh, th- movie theater on Main Street in Sag Harbor, New York. It burned down last year and is just being rebuilt, which makes me very happy.
2: Oh, wow. All right.
1: Uh, first R-rated movie you remember seeing? Oh, man. Well, I don't know. Was, was, was Alien R-rated? Yes. Okay. I think that's the one I can really first remember seeing. There's was, there was probably something on the, in in early HBO that I saw and shouldn't have seen. Um, uh, seeing Alien clutching my mom because I was terrified. I was, I was still a kid at the time. It was a really bad decision to take me to that. How old are you? Ah, oh, man. When did it come out? I was born in 69.
2: Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was not allowed to see it. I was born in 71, and my brother... Mm-hmm got to see it and I didn't. It was sort of that thing where he was just old enough to see these things. Right. And uh, he, uh, I, I've told this story on the show before, but he came home that night and literally set up for what felt like the length of the movie telling me the whole movie. <laughs> which is pretty great for a big brother. That's sounds good of him. That's nice. <laughs> um,
1: will you walk out of a bad movie? Mm, uh, I will walk out of a bad movie made in bad faith. Right. I think that some mm. movies are clearly uh, uh, crappy. And nobody is really, really gives a crap uh, about it. Um, That, but not a bad movie made in good faith, which is to say that it's hard to make even a bad movie. Um, So I will hang in there out of a kind of a ritual obligation to the filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes, you know, you you get a trick or two even out of something that, that stinks.
2: But that's a great answer. A, a bad movie made in bad faith. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh. It's like you don't deserve for me to sit here. <laughs>
1: yeah, like, listen,
2: if you didn't care about it, why should I? Uh, all right, number four, we usually tailor to the guests, so I'm going to go with uh, what movie and movie history do you most wish, uh, wish you would have
1: directed? Mm. Um. Or written. Or written. Or both. <laughs> oh, man. I mean... Uh, it might be, I mean, so another one of my favorites is, is, uh, high and low, uh, the Kurosawa film, mm-hmm. which I think is yeah, sh- sheer brilliance. Um, you know, a film that, that maintains tension, even though it's mostly shot in one, one room, um, something like that, that would be fantastic. All right. Good answer. Uh, and then finally, number five
2: movie going one-on-one. Uh, what do you do at the movie theater? Where do you sit and what do you eat?
1: Um, I usually don't eat anything. Uh, I know that's very sad, but I don't like crunching. I don't like being distracted by goobers, (laughs) which if I did eat something, it'd be goobers. Um, and, uh, let me see if it's a full crowd. I would rather be front row center. Uh, if not, I'll try to get the best angle on, on the, the screen, which would be about five rows back in the middle front row huh yeah sometimes i like to to uh, be totally immersed in it but actually it really depends on the on the, the distance between the front row and the screen as well right sure sure uh, because uh, i don't i i, I don't want to um look around too much awesome all right well thanks chris
2: Thank you. This is a lot of fun. That was Uh, fun. Really loved Operation Finale and congratulations on that.
1: That's awesome. Quite an achievement. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners for listening to me. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, man. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. See you. Bye
2: bye. All right, everybody. How did we do? Did we cover the movie enough for you? I hope so. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. There was a lot there and uh, he had really good insight on it. It was cool to talk to a director um, who was able to explain things like what a long lens means uh, to someone like myself and maybe to you. So I hope you learned something there and uh, really enjoyed uh, his take on uh, the characters and um, just the shooting of this film, which was just uh, amazing all these years later to see a movie like this with those huge frames and all those extras and uh, soldiers and horses and camels. And it's all real, everyone. Uh, It's not like it is today. So pretty amazing that they could pull a movie like this off. I believe uh, Steven Spielberg has described Lawrence Arabia as a miracle of a film. And I I couldn't agree more. So big thanks to Chris. Uh, He was a really nice dude. It was great to talk to him. And uh, maybe we'll meet in person one day. Support his work. Go check out Operation Finale in theaters August 29th. Uh, Very good, beautifully shot, uh, taught thriller of a film. Highly recommended. And uh, Oscar Isaac and Ben Kingsley, it doesn't get any better than that, everybody. So go check it out and support his future work. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And until next time, why don't you go bring a Nazi to justice? Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at Works Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia.
0: I'm Richard Blaze and I'm a chef and restaurateur who has judged or competed on nearly every cooking show. And now I've found a way to judge on a podcast. On my new podcast, Food Court with Richard Blaze, amazing guests bring their food arguments to my court and I settle them once and for all. You think ranch is better than blue cheese? Prove it. You hate pineapple
2: on pizza? Convince me. The first season of Food Court with Richard Blaze is up, and you can subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. This season, Notre Dame women's basketball coach Muffet McGraw is battling a losing record.
1: Every game knowing you're supposed to win, that really weighs heavy on your shoulders. And I think I said at one point, wouldn't it be great to be the underdog again? My husband said, be careful what you wish for. And here we are.
2: Listen to The Only Way Is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.